And Moses took his wife and his sons and set them upon an ass, and he returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the rod of God in his hand. And the Lord said unto Moses, When thou goest to return into Egypt, see that thou do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in thine hand. But I will harden his heart, that he shall not let the people go. And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And I say unto thee, Let my son go, that he may serve me. And if thou refused to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. And it came to pass, by the way, in the end, that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at his feet and said, Surely a bloody husband art thou to me. So he let him go. Then she said, A bloody husband art thou art because of the circumcision. And the Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. And he went and met him in the mount of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord who had sent him and all the signs which he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. And Aaron spake all the words which the Lord had spoken unto Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked upon their afflictions, then they bowed their heads and worshipped. We read God's word that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. As I stated, we take verses 24 to 26 this morning as our text. And it came to pass by the way in the inn that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at his feet, and said, Surely a bloody husband art thou to me. So he let him go. Then she said, A bloody husband art thou, because of the circumcision. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, God has his church in Egypt, where the devil had brought them into bondage and was seeking their destruction. Egypt, remember, is a picture of the bondage of sin and death. And the devil thought that by killing off the people of God, he would then be able to destroy the purpose and plan of God. But that didn't work out as he had desired. So then, the devil seeks to bring them into fierce bondage under Pharaoh. A bondage by which Pharaoh caused them to be subjected to hard physical labor. A labor that was used by Pharaoh to build the treasure cities of Egypt and to establish Egypt even more powerfully than before. The devil, seeking in this way to bring the Israelites into the culture and the enjoyment of Egypt, seeking to bring it so that they now would become lured into the ways of the world, lured into the culture and the ways of Egypt and the gods of Egypt, and then, in that way, the purposes of God would not be realized. Jesus wouldn't come. Such is the clever tactic that the devil is trying to use. But God is in the midst of her. And God will preserve and keep his own. Israel is a people of God. And that comes out strikingly here in verse 22 when God identifies Israel is my son, even my firstborn. These are the heirs of Abraham. 
These are the ones whom God has chosen as his peculiar people, called out and committed to him. And God will preserve and keep them. Some 400 years previous, God had given promises through Abraham, Isaac, and through Jacob. And now, God is going to cause those promises to be realized. It's striking in that context that when Stephen is speaking of this history in Acts 7, at the time of his martyrdom, he makes reference to this time period as the time of promise. Moses is being prepared by God to be that mediator. And God is going to overcome the power of the devil, the power of Pharaoh, and God is going to do so in a marvelous way. It's going to be a bloody way, as is spoken of here with regard to verse 23. I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. God is going to destroy the firstborn of Egypt. And you children know that refers to the tenth plague when the angel of death entered into every home where there was not blood on the doorpost. All this is intended to point us to the blood of Jesus Christ, which alone is our covering. We have here in our text one of the most important and powerful passages in the Bible to impress upon us as God's people the seriousness of the sacraments. Just how serious is baptism? How important it is, is it, to present our children for baptism? We don't take baptism lightly. And this passage sets before us the extreme importance that we must place on baptism and the place that it occupies within the covenant people of God. We look at this passage under the theme, Moses' life sought. Noting first the deliverance, second the picture here, and finally the fruit. In order to get at the essence of our text, it's important that we first back up and look at the whole picture again as we've been looking at it over the course of the weeks during which we've looked at the book of Exodus. Moses, we recall, was chosen to be the deliverer of Israel. God had raised him up out of the tribe of Levi. Amram and Jochebed were his parents. And God had chosen Moses in order that he would be the one prepared by God to deliver the people. Amram and Jochebed were given to understand that he was a goodly child. And we noted just how much they understood, we don't know. How much they were able to realize what Moses' calling would be. But it seems as though Moses was equipped and prepared by them for a potential important work on God's behalf. So that Moses understood in his heart the place that he had and the purpose for which God would use him in the deliverance of Israel. Moses, as he was growing up, was likely circumcised on the eighth day. And then remember the marvelous way in which, as it became more difficult for them to keep Moses, Amram and Jochebed put him in a little ark on the river, and Pharaoh's daughter found him there. Marvelously again, in God's perfect providence, Moses was taken into the home of his own parents, where he was raised for the first years of his life. After 40 years, Moses having been raised in his own home and then in the home of Pharaoh's daughter, having been trained in all the ways of Egypt, now believed himself prepared to be that deliverer. And he showed his faith as Hebrews 11 declares that by faith he refused Egypt. He refused to be called a son of Pharaoh's daughter and now he cast his lot with Israel. He had not forgotten the God whom his parents had taught him when he was little. 
And so by faith now, Moses presses forward. A wonderful, a marvelous thing. But at the same time, Moses shows himself impatient. He's leaning on his own arm of strength instead of looking to God. And he kills then that Egyptian. He then is rejected by the Hebrews. They weren't ready. And Moses was not yet ready. And so God has to bring Moses into Midian, where Moses then is prepared for another 40 years, becoming a shepherd under Jethro, or Rule, one who was a descendant of Abraham with his second wife, Keturah. Jethro has a daughter, Zipporah, whom Moses marries. And Moses becomes a shepherd, then caring for Jethro's sheep. God brought Moses then to the burning bush, and now for the first time, after 400 and some years, God makes known the marvelous revelation to Moses concerning God has not forgotten his church. And God is faithful to his people, and God will accomplish his deliverance. And you remember, God gives himself to Moses through the name, I am that I am, setting before Moses the blessed assurance and the wondrous truth with which he can go forward. God is his God, and that God is faithful. God revealing that name to set forth two things, his grace, God is faithful to a people who have been sinful. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, sinners, men who are not worthy, and yet God is faithful to his promise, a God of grace and a God of faithfulness. What a great encouragement again, not only to Moses, but to us. The fact that Jehovah God is a God of grace. He's a God who keeps his promises. He's a God who is faithful despite our sinfulness and our unfaithfulness. And what a great encouragement that God hears the cries of his people. When we cry out sometimes in prayer, we wonder, is God hearing me? Does God listen? Does God hear? Does he know the struggles that I'm enduring? And we're assured, yes, as your heavenly father, God hears your cries. And God grants you the grace and strength to preserve and to keep you in his faithfulness in your generations. God then gives Moses in chapter 4 a number of signs. You remember Moses' hesitation. God gives Moses these great promises. He says, Moses, go forward in my name. And yet Moses falters. Moses shows himself to be weak. He has questions. He has doubts. And we can relate to Moses. God gives us beautiful promises. He says, press on. And yet, We're filled with concern. Really? How is it going to go? I don't feel like I'm qualified. I don't feel like I'm capable. And so God gives Moses these signs to demonstrate his power over the devil, over sin, and his power over all the gods of Egypt. And so Moses takes his staff, the staff that he throws down, it turns into a snake, and then he picks it up to show God is powerful over the devil. And though the devil seems to have Israel in his grip, God will destroy that power and that influence. Sin, described in leprosy, Moses taking his hand, putting it in his bosom, it's leprous, and then putting it back in, it's, it's cleansed. So that God shows, I will cleanse my people. They're sinners, they're sinful, but I will wash them, and I will cleanse them. And how will he do it? Through the wonder of the blood of a Savior. And then finally, the water poured out from the Nile, turning into blood, showing Moses that God is more powerful than all the gods of Egypt. 
Again, encouragement. God giving Moses these promises and now saying to Moses, Moses now, go to Pharaoh. Go to Egypt and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Again, Moses is uncertain. And so God says, Moses, I'll give you an assistant. I'll give you Aaron as your mouthpiece. And so now we have Moses here in verse 18 now, going back to Jethro now, informing Jethro of his desire to go to Egypt. It's striking that Moses doesn't tell Jethro anything with regard to all the wonders that have happened. He doesn't tell Jethro about the burning bush and the revelation of God. He doesn't tell Jethro about these signs. He just simply comes to Jethro and says to Jethro, I pray thee, let me go and return to my brethren which are in Egypt and see whether they be yet alive. Moses is committed to Jethro. He's been serving Jethro. He desires to have Jethro's permission to leave. And Jethro, revealing himself to be a man of God, a wise man, doesn't ask questions, simply says, go in peace. And so he provides encouragement to Moses and releases Moses then from his responsibilities. Now it would seem that Moses must still not have immediately left But God comes again to Moses with more encouragement. One would say, how much encouragement does Moses need? But if we put ourselves in Moses' shoes, this is daunting. Moses has to go to Pharaoh now. And Moses keeps on, so to speak, dragging his feet. And so now he has permission from Jethro. And then God comes with another word of encouragement in verse 19. Go and return into Egypt, for all the men are dead which sought thy life. A command again, go. And don't be afraid, because the people who sought you, they're dead. In that, too, we see God's love, don't we, and his care for his children. We who are weak, we who are sinful, we who falter, God in his mercy and in his love encourages us. And he encourages us again, even beyond that which we deserve. And what Moses is experiencing here is something marvelous. Fellowship and communion with God. God had not revealed himself directly to anyone since Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now Moses is learning what it is to have direct communion with God. God is repeatedly coming to Moses and talking with Moses and encouraging Moses. And Moses is interacting with God. And Moses is learning here what a wondrous friend he has in God. And he's learning God's covenant faithfulness. What a beautiful thing that Jehovah God, the almighty creator of heaven and earth, takes us, his sinful, unworthy children, and embraces us in his love, and he gives us his word, and he talks to us, and he encourages us, and he builds us up, and he strengthens us, and he gives us to know fellowship, communion with himself. That's the beautiful enjoyment here that Moses now is growing in his experience of. And then even more encouragement comes in verses 21 to 23. When thou goest to return into Egypt, see that thou do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in thine heart. But I will harden his heart, that he shall not let the people go. And thou shalt say unto Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And I say unto thee, Let my son go, that he may serve me. And if thou refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay thy son, even thy firstborn. As the sovereign king of heaven and earth, God comes to Moses and says, Moses, remember, I'm in charge. 
I rule all things. And I'm the one who will not only harden the heart of Pharaoh, but I'm also going to make sure that Pharaoh will accomplish and perform my perfect will. And he confirms a wonder of wonders. Israel. Israel is my son. My firstborn. Again, what a beautiful testimony. This people belongs to me. They're mine. They may look rebellious. They may be content to stay in Egypt. But they belong to me. And Moses, you're to now act on my behalf to care for these who belong to me. They're mine. In other words, Moses, deal tenderly, deal patiently, because these are a people whom I love and whom I have embraced as my own. Again, beloved, there's so much here of God providing a word of life to his saints. In the midst of all the trials, all the struggles of life that we face, God bringing his promises to bear on our circumstances, on our trials, and God assuring us of his presence, his care for us, and his provision of our needs. He is the one who loves his church as his firstborn. But there's another important thing that's happening here and what Moses has to understand. Moses has to realize that he has to die to himself and he has to be willing to give himself for those who belong to the Lord. These people belong to Jehovah God. And God now calls Moses, Moses, you need to represent me. This isn't about you. This is about me. And God is working in Moses a meekness, which later is referenced in terms of Moses being the meekest man that ever lived. God working in him now at 80 years of age, an understanding of this calling. It's not about me. It's about God. God is the one who loves this people. And God now entrusts to me this responsibility on his behalf to care for them and to minister to them. God is working the wonder by which the old man is put to death and the new man is quickened and encouraged. The wonder of sanctification here in the life of Moses. As Moses is called on God's behalf. Now so powerful that is, that in verse 16, it's striking. And he shall be, talking now about Aaron, thy spokesman unto the people, and he shall be, even he shall be to thee instead of a mouth, and thou shalt be to him instead of God. That's astounding. But what God is telling Moses there is, Moses, you represent me before Aaron. Aaron is going to be your mouthpiece, and you are to be the one who is encouraging Aaron and giving Aaron to understand my word, my promises, and all of the wonders that I've performed. God is leading Moses to die to himself in order that he might live unto God. And that's the calling that all of us have. As we understand God's work of grace in our lives, God impresses upon us that we must decrease in order that Christ increase in us. Now that idea... Dying unto self and living unto God is emphasized then through this circumstance in our text. We look at the picture here. And it came to pass by the way in the inn that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Now this is difficult to understand. God had just told Moses, Moses, don't worry. The people that sought your life, they're dead. 
And then all of a sudden, God comes, and God seeks Moses' life. How much more terror-filled. It's one thing to have to run away from men. One cannot escape God. Now, clearly the reason is because Moses had not circumcised one of his sons. We don't know whether this is an angel now that comes to Moses. We don't know how this happens here in this incident. God comes, and it's evident from verse 24, the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Literally, the idea there is that God struck him. And generally, the idea here is understood that God struck him with some debilitating disease or with some kind of reality that he now was incapable of moving. Some kind of temporary paralysis or something so that Moses now is struck by God and he's left them immobilized. He cannot perform. He cannot do anything. Now evidently the oldest son, Gershom, had been circumcised. But then Eliezer was born and Eliezer had not been circumcised. Eliezer at this time may have been just a matter of weeks at the most months old. So he's just a little baby. But he was not yet circumcised. And immediately Moses and Zipporah understand what the problem is. Now we're not given insight into what had gone on in Moses' home. Most conclude that though Zipporah had been a descendant of Abraham and Keturah, distant descendant, that in their tradition, circumcision had not been passed on. And so that circumcision had been lost. They no longer were circumcising their children. So that Moses, insisting on the firstborn being circumcised, faced opposition from his wife. And finally, in order to keep peace then in the home, did not circumcise their second son. Giving in to her resistance, compromising for the sake of peace, Moses then doesn't do it. That would seem to be legitimate based on the response of Zipporah, especially calling Moses a bloody man. And the idea there being that he is associated with a bloody tradition. Now Moses' life is being threatened. And having struck, been struck by God now, Zipporah realizes circumcision has to take place according to the demand of Jehovah. And the son then is circumcised and the blood is spilled. And afterward, we read that God lets Moses go. He's recovered, he's restored from whatever debilitation that was, and now he's able to be with his wife. The use here of a stone is not out of ordinary. Flint knives were often used in Egypt. And she makes use then of a knife that was of flint and performs the circumcision. We understand the comments that are made with regard to Moses being a bloody man here in 25 and in 26, one and the same. Literally, a bridegroom of blood. And then in verse 26, repeating it but explaining that it's referring to the fact of the circumcision. And it's striking there that the word in verse 26, when it says because of the circumcision, is actually plural, because of the circumcisions. So that she's referring to both Gershom and Eliezer. Now what is going on here, beloved? 
God is impressing upon Moses and upon us the importance of faithfulness to Jehovah God. That's the issue. One who is called by God to represent God must be faithful to God's covenant. And the truth of God's covenant must live in his heart. It must so live in his heart that it consumes and directs the whole of his life so that the whole of his life now is lived out of that devotion to God and that delight in the things of God's kingdom. The sign of the covenant reveals that Moses and his family are hid up in God and that Jehovah God is their covenant friend and the one for whom they live and to whom they are committed. This passage teaches once sin is exposed, it must be rejected. We must get it out of our lives. And it's striking here that what's exposed here is a sin of omission. God exposes not only sins of commission, sins that we committed, also he exposes things that we have not done that we ought to have done. And note the seriousness of faithfulness to God. One who is unfaithful to God faces death. The soul that sins, that soul must die. Moses, as he's going into Egypt now to represent God, must be faithful to God and to the covenant. And the concept of the covenant must not just be some external thing. It must live in his heart. And he must be willing to sacrifice of himself for the sake of Jehovah God. Moses can't face Israel. He can't face Pharaoh in any other way than to be true to God and true to God's covenant in his own life. If in his own life there are exceptions, how can he stand before Pharaoh? How can he stand before Israel? So that Jehovah God, again, impresses upon us, we who are called to represent God in the midst of this life, we who know the wonder of the covenant in our hearts, must be walking faithfully before our God. And where there's sin in our life, we need to repent. We need to turn from it. And we need to realize the seriousness of Jehovah God's communion and fellowship with us. God dwells with us. He loves us. And he calls us to die to self and to live unto him. Now it's often understood that after this incident, Moses then either went back to Midian with his family to leave them there or he sent his wife and sons back to Midian. And that is based on the fact that later on in chapter 18, verse 2, we read that Moses had sent them back. And then we finally have the first indication of Moses now coming into contact again with Zipporah and his sons. So that even though it's not referenced here directly, we can conclude that at this time now, Zipporah and her sons went back to Midian, and Moses realizing now the importance of proceeding alone, and being faithful to God goes forward now. When he meets her again in chapter 18, he meets Jethro with her, and then he fills her in on all the details that are going to be happening here. And again, from that, then we would conclude that he must, she must not have witnessed any of the plagues firsthand, because Moses then tells her all about them. Moses is on the foreground here, and what's on the foreground here is faithfulness to Jehovah God. The way to Israel, the way to Pharaoh is death to self and life with God. And the only way out of bondage to sin is through blood, the shedding of blood. 
Moses is directed to the wonder of the Messiah, the wonder of Christ, and the fact that through Jesus Christ alone and the shedding of his blood is their atonement. Moses then forsakes the world in order to be faithful to his God in all things. And he demonstrates that the covenant of God is central in his life. And both Moses and Zipporah are now impressed with that reality before God. Peace in one's home is not most important. Allowing sin to remain in order to appease family or friends is not acceptable before God. Obedience to God is first. And one small neglect may frustrate the whole purpose of life. Such is the power of the devil, seeking to get unrepentant sin in our lives, knowing that if he can get us to live in unrepentant sin, just one little thing, maybe two little things, then he can bring about our demise. There's no such thing as a small sin. God demands repentance, and he demands faithfulness to himself. And so we ask ourselves, am I living as covenant, a covenant child of God? with that covenant in my heart and understanding that what's most important in my life is God, that I live unto Him and die to self and that I put away sin, temptation from before me. He who represents God before men must be blameless. Once a threat is removed, God no longer seeks His life. God lets Him go. And Moses now faces the challenges that are before him. What is God teaching Moses and us in this history? Jesus Christ is the Savior of Israel. We see the gospel here in this passage. Jesus, beloved, is your Savior. He's my Savior. He's the one who saved his people from their sins. He chose you, he chose me before the foundations of the world in order that he might deliver us from that bondage of sin. That bondage that affects our natures and takes us into the service of self. That which was our desire, our inclination, must be put away. And we must serve God and God alone. God is teaching you, he's teaching me to die to self and live unto him and to live for his glory. We are weak, we are sinful, we're inclined to complain, we're inclined to make excuses, we're inclined to harbor sins yet in our lives. Jesus Christ, as the word of life, comes to us. And he's the rod of God, who in love chastises us, turns us, who overcame the devil, overcame the bondage to sin, and alone is able to destroy all our enemies. He is the one whose name is above every name. And now Jesus faced that wrath of God for you and for me. God sought our lives because of our sins. And Jesus stood in our way. And Jesus took upon himself that wrath. He spilled his blood for his bride. So that Jesus is the bloody husband. He's the one who took upon himself the punishment that we deserved. He loved his bride so much that he was willing to spill his own blood for the sake of his bride. Zipporah wasn't understanding everything yet, it seems. She makes the accusation of Moses, not understanding the picture that's here. And the fact that Moses represents the Messiah. He represents Jesus Christ. The firstborn of all 
is Jesus Christ, in whom we are found and in whom we know the blessing of life everlasting. And so God gives us this morning the sacrament of baptism as a replacement of that bloody circumcision. No longer is the bloody sign needed. We praise God for the wonder by which Jesus Christ stood in our place. He took upon himself the death that we deserved. And as a result now, through his perfect sacrifice, we have been washed. We have been cleansed. We died to self. And we live unto him. And God works faith. That's striking here. In verse 31, and the people believed. What a wonder. What a marvelous fruit. And the people believed. God brings Moses and Aaron back now after some years of separation. Moses talks to Aaron, tells him everything that he's experienced before God. What a joyful reunion that had to been. And what joy and thankfulness had to flood their hearts as these two brothers now come together and share with one another all that God has done for them. And what is it that especially God gives to them? Hope. And beloved, that's what you and I need. What is it that God gives to Israel? God gives Israel hope. In the midst of the troubles, the struggles, the difficulties of life that they're enduring, God directs them to the wonder by which He is faithful. And He will deliver them. And He will bring them out. And so Moses and Aaron gather all the elders of the people and they speak these words of God to them. Words of the gospel. Directing them to the promises of God. To the faithfulness of God. To the grace of God. To the fact God will keep His covenant. And God is faithful. He hears your cries out of your bondage. And he's going to come and he's going to look upon your affliction. God remembers. And God sees your affliction and God has pity and compassion. And God will bring about deliverance by his mighty hand. Again, the greatest thing that the people of God need is hope. Israel needed that hope in the midst of their afflictions. It seemed as though those afflictions were going to keep on going. It seemed as though there was no way of escape. No way out. God gives them now that hope. In the midst of your and my trials and struggles and difficulties, in the midst of the challenges that we face here below, we need hope. And God comes to us and God gives us the gospel of hope. He works in us that lively hope by which we've been born again unto the wonder of the resurrection. A life that's above. And this hope is the power of the gospel by which God stirs us up now and gives us to look to him and to know he's a God of grace. He's a God who's faithful. He's a God of mercy. And he's a God who's working all things together for our good. A God who understands exactly what's necessary to bring us into the fullness of the glory that awaits. Walking by sight all seemed in vain. It seemed as though Pharaoh was having the upper hand. It seemed as though Israel would be destroyed. The devil seemed all-powerful. Sin was winning. But hope lays hold on God and the promises of God's word. The devil has been crushed. Sin has been conquered. And we have a Savior in Jesus Christ who has washed us from all our sins and gives us to know the blessed wonder 
that in him we have life, a life that's from above, a life that's everlasting. We find in Jesus Christ our bloody bridegroom. And we don't mock him for that. We don't ridicule him for that. We rejoice in that. We count that a wonder that Jesus Christ spilled his blood on my behalf and that through him I have life and he will preserve and keep me to all eternity. Living in a world that's given over to sin, God calls us to his side as his covenant people. And God calls us to live in the midst of this world as his own. To die to self and to live unto him. And we say, how is that possible? It's possible through the blood of the bridegroom, through the blood of Jesus Christ and the wonder of his cleansing power in our lives. As he lives and dwells within us by his spirit, as he gives us to know the forgiveness of sin so that we know not just the sign of baptism, but the reality of our baptism. I have been cleansed. I've been washed. And as one now who belongs to God in Jesus Christ, he will preserve me and he will keep me and he will give me everything that's necessary. And he will keep me from temptation. And he will give me the grace of repentance. And I am not to compromise, but I'm to live unto him faithfully and obediently. How do we show that we understand the marvelous character of God's covenant? We bow our heads and we worship. And they bowed their heads and worshiped. As we have this passage, like I stated, the strongest, one of the strongest passages about the importance of the sacrament, and specifically baptism, we submit to it. And we're thankful for this sign and this seal. And we worship God. It's for this reason that when a couple who's in good standing here at Calvary comes to the consistory and requests baptism for their child, the consistory has no right to turn them down. The consistory has to grant that request before God. This is the calling of that covenant couple. And this is the calling of the church to see to it that her own are baptized. Those who confess Christ, those who live godly lives, must receive the sacrament not only they and their children. And we belong to Christ. We're members of his covenant community. Separate from the world, those who are called now to cast our lot with God and to live unto him. In the full understanding of what that requires of us. Daunting. I'm a sinner. I see my weakness. But beloved, we live as those who are baptized. And we show forth then the cleanliness that that signifies. I am washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. I don't give myself over to the filth of sin. I turn away from that porn. I reject the drugs, the drinking of the world. I refuse to walk in the ways of lust, in the ways of pride. I don't need those things to know joy. I have God. And having God as my covenant friend, I have that which is necessary for me to worship and to be thankful. I'm washed. I'm cleansed. And so I don't give my eyes, my hands, my feet over to that filth of sin. But I look to Jesus Christ, the one 
through whom I am able to be kept pure and holy and the one who will preserve me as his own. I don't live as though I don't know God. I don't live as though the devil is my father. God is my father. And he's taking me into his family. And I now am called to show forth his praise and to walk in thankfulness to him as I represent him in the midst of this world. Beloved, this is the wonderful fruit of our deliverance. We're thankful. And in that thankfulness, we bow before God and we worship him. God has not forgotten me. God has not cast me off. God is faithful and he's going to preserve and keep me. And what a great encouragement in our lives. What a great encouragement for Israel, the downtrodden Israelites under bondage, seemingly crushed, knowing that their God is faithful and their God will preserve and keep them. Many talk about thankfulness to God, but never live it. Beloved, may we be a people that not only talks about thankfulness to God, but shows it concretely by our walk and our conduct. Remember what Moses has said to God. He said, God, they're not going to listen to me. They're not going to obey my voice. Look what God was able to accomplish. We as parents sometimes say with regard to our wayward children, they won't listen to us. They're not going to hear my voice. As elders, we struggle. We bring words of encouragement. We finally despair. They're not going to listen. They're not going to hear us. As school teachers, we wrestle with students, perhaps. They listened and they obeyed. What great things God is able to do. God is faithful. And God is able to penetrate the hardest of hearts. And God is able to work in them a glorious response. What a beautiful thing hope is, beloved. And we go forward as those who lay hold upon that glorious hope. Knowing the joy and the wonder of our covenant God and His faithfulness. And that hope then lifts our heavy hearts. That hope burns through the darkness. And it reveals the wonder of God's faithfulness, God's goodness. Our God will not forget. Our God is faithful to his promise. And we have a bloody husband in whom is all our salvation. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank and praise thee for the glorious deliverance that is ours. Work in us that gratitude and that thankfulness. And may we press on, knowing and believing that the wonder of wonders in our lives is that we have a covenant-keeping God who communes with us, who fellowships with us, who encourages us, who preserves us, who works repentance in our hearts, and who will keep us unto all everlasting. Amen.